0: So I moved into computer science. And at the time, people said, oh, my God, you know, that I don't know if it's going to sustain. It seems very new, so forth which just really led to the fact that people didn't understand computer science or the breadth and the richness of it. But that was how I got into it. I was also very interested in making sure that I wasn't pigeonholed into doing something, meaning chemical engineers, particularly on an industrial scale, work on large operations, either petroleum industries or other Dow Chemical, other manufacturing industries. And I liked the potential of a lot of
1: variety. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common sense.
2: She's a professor of computer science and the chair of the Department of Computer Science and Technology at Keene University. We're going to talk about uh, AI and machine learning and error detection. So, Jisoo, thanks for coming.
0: Thank you. Delighted to be here.
2: Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and how and why you settled on uh, AI, at least currently, for your your research and work.
0: So, Great question. Let's see. Once upon a time, I was interested in um, engineering and science, and that's usually the way young women get into dem fields. Often there's someone in the family who has introduced them and made science exciting and so forth. So I was interested in being a chemical engineer. When I went to college, taking all the good engineering core courses, and if you're familiar with chemical engineering, you start out with general chemistry, and you go into analytical chemistry, and then you get into physical chemistry. And pchem was really where I started to realize I did not care what happened when you moved from a solid to a liquid to gas. If the water was an ice cube, if it was a liquid, if it was steam, I didn't care. And so it was at that point that I realized what else is there available, I've got this core course curriculum and computer science was coming in and that's really applied solutions, which I found far more interesting than what I was beginning to perceive as fairly theoretical work in the field of engineering that I had thought I was headed towards. So I moved into computer science and at the time people said, oh my God, you know, that? I don't know if it's going to sustain, it seems very new, so forth which just really led to the fact that people didn't understand computer science or the the breadth and the richness of it. But that was how I got into it. I was also very interested in making sure that I wasn't pigeonholed into doing something, meaning chemical engineers, uh, particularly on an industrial scale, work on large operations, either petroleum industries or other Dow Chemical, other manufacturing industries. And I liked the potential of a lot of variety, and really limitless constraints in computer science. That was very, very important to me. Variety and essentially no limits. So those were a couple driving forces.
2: Yeah, I did a bachelor's in chemical engineering, and I remember uh, chem was was really hard, and it was like, well. It It
0: was, it was. And I had, I really liked the tactile, you know, Gen Chem analytical chemistry with the titration and then organic chemistry, working out when the bonds were made, when they were broken and what you'd get if you broke the bonds with heat or whatever. But man, P-Chem just, uh, so could be teaching, could be the topic, who knows, but here I am.
2: What has been your interaction with AI? What, What are you working on? What kind of research questions are you looking at?
0: So I work in the area of human computer interaction, and we're looking heavily at artificial intelligence as a way to improve people's lives and make sure that what they're doing, they can do it more safely. They can do it more efficiently. They can do it better. When I first got out of college, I of course decided I really didn't want anything to do with with college. I was done with higher education and I went out and worked in industry and I worked on people's networks. They had performance problems. Uh, Networks weren't fast enough, remember those days. We didn't get the throughput that we needed. So I would often travel and visit a site and I would study things and make recommendations and they would adopt them. And hopefully the the network performance would improve. But one of the ways that we started to use artificial intelligence and really machine learning was studying the degradation of networks. So long term, networks would be running great, for example, but then over time, They would start to go a little bit bad and then they'd have what we would call catastrophic failure where they just didn't work and this led to some kind of horrible slowdown either in equipment or machinery or resources specifically we were working on a problem at Argonne national laboratories related to nuclear reactors and obviously the supporting systems for nuclear reactors you really want them to be tip top and running very smoothly But we found that we could measure and watch certain factors in the network, and that would help us determine when we needed to repair some components before we hit a catastrophic failure. So there were symptoms of slowing down, performance degradation, which if we track them very carefully, analytically through mathematics, we could figure out when they were going to fail. And this was a question of studying patterns, looking for behaviors, projecting forward what might happen and hopefully saving ourselves and hopefully a nuclear reactor, from very serious degradation and potentially
2: disaster. Why does this happen? I would think that, you know, I, I work with a team that also just does websites and coding. After a while, the website will break, coding will, will break. I mean, part of it is, I guess, the the other coding that the website's interacting with. But right. why would, I don't know, why would a static reactor or control system uh, break apart? What would, What would cause it to do that?
0: Well, there's a lot of machinery doing the cooling, delivering the environment in order to do the measurements, the detecting of the various uh, flows and performance meters. And so monitoring all of that and determining... Are we going up are we going down gives us an idea of when there's going to be failure think about your car presumably a combustion automobile at this point but that's yep. another we'll get to the other side of that in a minute and you know when the car needs to get a tune up you've got a certain number of miles on it the oil you're wondering there's a sound in the morning things like that all of these things you're processing through your head and you're like i gotta take it to the shop i gotta get it looked at well these large complex systems that we have out there Humans can't do that. There's too much input to take. We don't assimilate it in the same way. Uh, Over time, we don't see the behaviors, but they're crystal clear if you are able to use some artificial intelligence and machine learning to identify the patterns, look for the trends and see where you're headed and fix it before you get there.
2: I think I see what, what might be going on. So in my car, I'll have control systems that make sure the engine fires properly and all this stuff. So let's say over time, the viscosity of my oil goes up and up and up because it hasn't changed and that causes more strain in the system. And then the computer has to modify certain parameters in order to keep the engine functioning. And perhaps this strain builds up over time where the, the model breaks down and the controller cannot handle what's going on in the current situation because of these things. You know, maybe um, a fan motor is starting to draw more and more electricity because the insulation is wearing out or something. And that combined with the oil viscosity and other parameters now puts the controller into a situation where let's say it can't effectively control the system and thereby it breaks is that how these things happen
0: yeah that's very good analogy so individually you realize all of these things and you're taking them on board but collectively you know you're not as objective you don't realize hey i've got two more weeks and then i'm going to you know lose the engine here or my transmission's going to go and a little ounce of prevention can really make sure that you don't have a disaster like that so yes that's what we were doing this is something that we did with the nuclear reactors we got it patented and it was a good way to identify a potential systemic failures from many complex variables quickly and get them to the folks that can take care of them.
2: What about in an AI control system? Do data sets migrate or drift over time because of the inbound parameters? And at some point, the training module or the training gets screwed up on an AI because of this drift? Does that happen as well?
0: Well, the thing with AI that we have to keep in mind is it's only as good as its inputs. So if you're giving it bad data, you're going to get bad output. So uh, hopefully, if we're training uh, a module or training a machine, we're going to make sure we work on really good data, but we have to do data cleaning. We have to make sure the data is free of bias, which is extremely challenging to do. So what we need to be very, very alert to these days is our AI models are racing forward. We've seen that with some of the generative AI that we've we've been talking about lately. But if the data underpinning the modeling is not good, we're going to get results that are nonsensical or even downright bad. So AI can drift, as you put it, but it's really based on the data we give it and any inherent bias that might be in there or just poor data.
2: Is it just a static initial training set or are there various AI as, again, maybe used for control that the data is constantly being fed to it yes. you know, as it's going and adapting? So, I would think those systems, maybe let's say with self driving cars, I would think those systems you have to be a lot more careful because, again, you might get significant drift without even realizing it.
0: Correct, right. So, when you're getting dynamic data in, they, you know, We had some rough weather elsewhere in the country in the last few days, and suppose a self-driving car is getting a lot of information about cold roads and poor contact, and maybe there's snow and ice. And if it wasn't tested in those environments rigorously, it may not be as solid in that environment. I'm not saying it is or isn't, but I'm just saying if it had always been tested in nice weather in Arizona and California— Uh, We're going to have to make sure that any of the self-driving modules are in good shape, even with this new data that we're getting in. Dynamic data is very, very challenging because you can get bad data in and quickly the system can be giving you different types of outputs. So another area where I would...
2: Yeah, one more thought came to mind there. You know, again, let's say I live in whatever, Washington, and there's a big cold front, a huge storm that comes in for like a week. There's snow, there's ice, et cetera. Me and 100,000 other people are driving our Teslas. And now all the data that that particular part of the network is getting is very different because it's seeing snow and ice and the control of the brakes and the steering. The AI has to modify itself. So when that first happens, I would expect there to be maybe slippage of control because the parameters have changed so much. And then once the ice storm is over, let's say now it gets warm again, I would expect a temporary, let's say, higher error rate as the AI now has to transition to a new regime of data and alter itself to fit that. I don't expect that it would be an instant, you know, get right back on track with the current conditions. Does that happen?
0: Uh, not really, no. So you're talking about a very, ro- a very robust self-driving system that it, it's not going to be quite as real time. You know, certainly you start up one of these systems, and the outside uh, temperature is known, the rate of any kind of weather, the the shell temperature, and then that's all assimilated right in, and, and we don't have those immediate problems you pointed out. I think one of the problems would be any algorithms that might be underlying AI, maybe recommender algorithms that we might use for, oh, I can think of, you know, certainly entertainment has some pretty solid ones suggesting things to you. If you share an Amazon account or a Netflix account with someone else in the house that maybe likes horror movies or monster movies or something, and then you come over and you're you're ready to make a selection and so forth, the algorithm's going to suggest things that are way out of whack for you not to your taste at all, because the other party had been using it. So that's a question of the algorithm getting some data that was not in line with your taste and using it then to make further recommendations, which are, are not appropriate because it got some bad data in it. And once you sort it out, you start to get the recommendations that you would like to see.
2: What kind of real systems are you studying and again, what, what actually does cause this, uh, these errors to happen and maybe propagate and maybe get out of control?
0: So one of the things that we were looking at last year was there's a lot of information about individual behaviors. It's hard to get data sets that are really solid on whether it's consumer behavior or whether it's people who, well, voting behavior is is a particularly good one. As the demographics of a community change over time, What might have been seen as a monolithic group has actually become more finely defined, let's say. You might have said, oh, trying to think, oh, there's a bunch of undergraduates. There's a bunch of undergraduates, and this is what undergraduates always do. However, you look more closely at the undergraduates, and you realize you have returning veterans, you have people who are older or younger on the spectrum, and no, they're not a monolithic group. They don't have the same taste, the same interests, and so forth. So the algorithm that might have been predicting their behaviors or the courses or the services they need are no longer very useful. They have to be tailored and tuned for some of those subpopulations. And when we get smaller and smaller data sets to to learn or tune on, that can lead to some differentiation. So, it's a question of making sure we have good data and large enough data sets to really make good predictions.
2: So, what areas of uh, AI are very difficult to get enough data for them to the function properly? What have you observed? Which ones are easier?
0: Anything real time. So, the medical stuff, the medical stuff, the medical profession where you have images and you want to do disease prediction and so forth, that can be extremely good. Uh, there are some very good data sets there. What I'm interested in again is the AI that will help us all live more efficiently and enjoy things better. So I'm interested in some of the wearable computing that we could have around us. I'd like to come into the home and have the lights on and the music playing or whatever needs to go on there. People are fairly predictable. And so it's very reasonable that nine times out of 10, you can get it right and set up their environment in advance of the individual arriving there. However, There are small things as people move into new environments, we might not know that they're not coming directly home that day, they wanna go to the ball field and play some ball or something like that. So adaptable systems are very interesting to me. It's hard to get data like that. We build personas, which is a technique in HCI where we try to build essentially characters and give them attributes and figure out how those personas would work in different types of environments. For example, is someone risk-tolerant or they risk-adverse? Do they like to tinker around and find out how things work, or do they like to know how a system works before they get involved with it? We're doing some work now on How to design more inclusive software systems that are better for everyone to use, not just for technically very talented people. That's a collaborative project with Margaret Burnett at Oregon State University, and we're working to, in our undergraduate curriculums, make sure the students are learning how to build inclusive systems using personas and testing the software to make sure it fits with a variety of different persona types.
2: What does inclusive system mean?
0: Oh, okay, inclusive systems mean that anyone can use it. An older person, a younger person, anyone who wants to accomplish something can work with the system. Think about Amazon, if you will. You go to the Amazon web page to purchase something, and hopefully you have just as good an experience as the next person, the older person, the younger person. However, there are an awful lot of systems that are quite frustrating for people to use. Obviously, uh, banking systems are one of my favorites. Not a big fan of those ATM systems. Sometimes they're positioned poorly. They're in the direct sunlight. They don't always. You know, you have to touch them. They may not be in the language that you want to be working with. They may not give you the service that you want. So those aren't particularly well-designed. They aren't meeting the needs of everyone. Could be you have a physical impairment, such as a uh, low vision, or you may be in a wheelchair and the height of it may be too awkward for you. Or it could be that, ATM just isn't allowing you to do the banking function that you want. Another really good example of a system that's pretty poorly designed are often those voice activation systems where you have to go through those, yeah, those audio cues to get the reservation in the system or to pick up whatever you need or to get to the human that can help you solve your problem. Those are very challenging for people who, if, if they're using them in English and they may not be a native speaker, uh, if they're different languages, I mean, you know in your business, which is very audio-driven, not everyone can use this system so we're trying to design software particularly interfaces to computers that really support everyone and make sure everyone can use them without getting frustrated
2: hmm. okay any examples of that of modifications to a system you've made how of the user experience change
0: A few years ago, we were trying to retrieve some pictures. So everyone saves photos. And actually, that's a really rough thing to retrieve because of the tagging you can put on your photo. I imagine you have a repository of photos and you want to pull up, you go to your repository and you're like, oh, I want to get that picture from when I was in New York or that picture when I was out camping or something like that. The way you probably do it is by thinking through your mind, okay, um, where was I? What year might it have been? What does it look like? Things like that. What we wanted to do was to put tags, uh, uh, word tags, on the photos that would allow for quick retrieval. The, the idea we were using was baby. How can you retrieve baby photos? Well, come on, there's got to be you know billions of them out there. It was interesting, though. I was working with a student who Spanish was her, her first language, and she pointed out we could use a Spanish or other languages, which would reduce and improve the retrieval speed because most of the tags are in English. And then if we concatenated it or put it with another tag, that could pull the image up even quicker, which was very interesting. So I I liked that approach and it cut down the retrieval time significantly. We published those results a couple of years ago. So it was a question of changing the way we organize the data, improving the tags for faster retrieval of information, which is a pretty good solution.
2: Hmm. Are there any large public systems that that are used for public good? They probably desperately need this. Um. Is anyone working on those and what would they be? So,
0: Well, I think that a lot of the things people search for, I mean, one of the examples I would say is, uh, of course, music. Everyone is saving music, retrieving music, things like that. My question to you would be, how do you, you know, whatever you play music on, how do you retrieve it? How does your playlist get made? Do you have to go in and manually pull things together yourself or how do you pull it together?
2: Well, so, I'm not really into music playlists okay well people do it why not
0: yeah it's pretty um, primitive yeah it's pretty primitive
2: it's I not as... finding photos like i knew the example of finding photos so i'll think oh when did i take that picture but i've tried a few keywords in like the search app on the phone but it sucks I didn't, I didn't i just didn't want to tag every picture as i took it but of course i want to be able to pull up a picture if i want so i haven't solved the problem yet but that's that's where it's at with pictures
0: no. Well, well, pictures and visual data is a huge open problem. I mean, it's challenging. It's, it's something we need to solve because most of us approach search with more of a text orientation. There are some systems where you can take an image and say, get me some things that look like this. Well, you know, if you're starting with your dog, you're going to come back with a lot of other pictures of other people's dogs, but that isn't going to work in a scalable manner. Another a uh, point that similarly is is searching for uh, film clips or something that you remember seeing in a film or this movie that had this type of scene. That's almost impossible to do without a good interface that's really intuitive. If you have a streaming service at home and you go in to try and uh, retrieve something you want to watch, the recommender systems are pretty poor. It's fairly hard to figure out whether you saw it, say, on a Netflix or an Amazon so we're looking at how we can aggregate that type of information, how we can get it retrieved more quickly.
2: Mm, it makes sense, yeah. There's tons and, tons and tons of stuff out there. I had heard, for instance, like AI is going to be incorporated supposedly into Bing search in the next month, or even now it's being incorporated in terms of AI and search for search engines. I don't know if you've contemplated it much. Um, what What does that landscape look like? What do you think's gonna happen there?
0: So. I think it's at the moment, it's kind of like the wild, wild west, pretty much anything goes, but I think it's going to radically change search. People don't remember that once upon a time, we used to put single words into search engines. I I remember talking to a colleague who was working at Google and he was reminding me how much search had changed. And this was probably, oh, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. Used to be, you would just put a word in, you'd get all the options then people started to put questions into search engines, you know, who starred in this or where is this restaurant and so forth. So the type of search that had to be handled by the search engine really changed. And I think that's what we're going to see with AI and with some of the initiatives in search engines, I think it's going to be much, much different. The idea that I just put forward about image retrieval is going to be dramatically changed. So I just think we're going to be able to pull things up that are going to be much more relevant much more quickly. Now, when you do search, even if you go in with a good question, you're going to get a lot of things that aren't appropriate pertain to what you were trying to do. So I'm hoping there'll be much more contextual search where they the search engine understands what you're trying to do and is able to retrieve more accurate information and results for you.
2: Yeah. I feel like working with databases and the internet and all that for so many years, I'm better at searching stuff than let's say like my wife or my kids, because I did stuff back in the day where you had to be like very generic where I know like um, I'm searching a database. Yes. If the query string is too detailed, it'll miss it. So I get it, make it more and more generic. I know I have to do that, but they don't, they're not familiar with me.
0: Right. Well, that's a tremendous advantage you have. And I I think we, I mean, it's good you realize it, because I really worry about folks who do not know how databases are organized and do not know how to refine and narrow a search such that they can work effectively with a search engine or a generative AI or whatever may come down the line, because those people are going to be at an enormous disadvantage. So the accessibility of the brave new world that we're we're peeking into is extremely important to me, making sure that everyone is able to retrieve the information they need as they need it. And they just don't have to all go to someone who is sophisticated in search, such as yourself.
2: How many uh, data sets do you think we just become abandoned? Either conditions change, people stop using it, or the system just doesn't work, so people give up. And then the data kind of uh, becomes an island that's sitting out there on some hard drive and is no longer used or usable.
0: I'm getting a picture in my mind of clouds and clouds of data that's just no longer, it's just orphan clouds or something. There's going to be a lot of data like that. One thing that we may see, though, is that AI can make connections between dissimilar data sets in ways that we hadn't really thought of. And that would be terrific. So rather having orphaned data, there may be actual linkages, census data, maybe with pictures of of historical places and so forth, connections that we could not have made in our own space but an AI system with its massive computing power can quickly make those linkages so suddenly you're pulling in not only dry census data but you're also getting images of people during those times and those streets and whatever else uh, might have gone on in that space
2: so is that data visualization that draws it is from-
0: it is but i think it's it's cooked up with a fair amount of ai the back end of ai if you will is an enormous appetite for chips and computing power which i think the the recent um chips uh, legislation is certainly feeding we've had troubles with batteries shall we say or the battery has been a real limiting factor for a lot of the advances in computing many of us haven't gotten new personal computing because we didn't need anything. We were okay with our desktop or whatever was going on. But I think AI will be driving a lot of hardware consumption as people go to to higher speed processors to handle those complex queries and get the results they want using AI.
2: I know I'm sure everyone asks you, what do you think about this chat GPT? You know, I've used it I find it really like kind of lame. I mean, you know, <laughs> platitudes. Well, it just seems to give platitudes. It repeats itself a lot in certain areas where I know a lot. It's just wrong, it's, right? It's just giving wrong info. Uh, right. We all other people are like, oh my god, changing the world. Right. What do you see? Is it kind of an insider?
0: Well, sure. I think you bring up a good point when you say some of it's just wrong, and that's the critical element. Some of it is wrong, but you have to be knowledgeable to realize that it's flawed in that aspect. Certainly, it's come into education and higher education in a tremendous way because there's a concern that it could generate stuff that is passable, let's say. What I think it's really going to do is allow us to start projects further along. So, one of the analogies is, you know, good old writing those papers. Oh my gosh, Chat GPT could write a paper. Well, they could provide some prompts. You could read them, but then maybe go into class and write the paper if that was a skill that you needed to have. I think it's going to push us further and further along, just like a lot of the curriculums that many of us had, you know, as we went through college maybe, are now being pushed down into high school. And so forth. there's more and more stuff that children are learning at younger ages. It's going to be very similar. The work product is going to raise up. We're going to be expected to develop things at a higher level because Chat GPT or some other type of generative AI can do some of the repetitive work and bring us, for example, read a bunch of research papers and give me summaries so that I would be expected to only dive into the research papers that were most relevant. And presumably, I'm hoping uh, my research would would tick up and, and be better off for it. So, I see AI and ChatGPT as a good supporting player. I like the fact that you've said it's got to be critically examined. I completely agree. And anything that comes out of it really needs to be looked at pretty closely, but it could help do some of the prep work for more sophisticated assignments and accomplishments later.
2: Hmm. Well, What do you expect to see in the next five years? Maybe may be a long time for this stuff. Of any dramatic changes or improvements?
0: Oh, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, uh, we we have such a great appetite for it. So what do I want? Again, i most frustrated, I think, with my streaming services that don't seem to remember what I watched and when I watched it. So I would like more personalized computing. I would like to have apps and services recommended to me that I could actually use rather than things that I wonder why on earth are they recommending this to me? I want longer life batteries in my devices and I want them to consume less energy. Just a lot of predictive computing. I think that's probably the next point that we're going towards rather than necessarily logging on and your browser remembers all your bookmarks. I mean, I wanted to actually pull up the things that I need at 10 o'clock or noon or later in the afternoon. I want it to suggest things that I should be doing next year and the year after. Uh, beginning to lay a path out, which more of a partner. You wanted to
2: tell you what to do or to guide you?
0: I wanted to make suggestions. You know, when you get into things and, you know, a lot of people like you are doing this or it would be extremely helpful, I think, in providing opportunities for some people if possibilities were put forward for folks. Uh, If you have a goal, these are some of the steps you can take towards that goal. Some of those systems are extremely elementary now. And we can move them along to a very sophisticated
2: level. You mean like an AI coach?
0: Yeah, absolutely. If, if for example, if I sat down and said, hey, I want to be a chemical engineer or I want to be a computer scientist, we'd like a nice, you know, personalized, this is one of the ways. These are famous computer scientists. This is one of the ways they got that way. If you want to go into this industry, you do this. If you want to do this, you do that. I get asked frequently by students, you know, this is where I want to be. How do I get there? And we craft out ways they can do it. We introduce them to alums, we share lectures and opportunities. And a lot of that kind of thing could be scaled up and done on a massive level for all sorts of folks. So they could get the experience of a lot of different opportunities.
2: Yeah, I would say whatever you do, don't take P-Chem, it'll ruin you for life.
0: <laughs> it's, you know, isn't it? I, I, I don't know. I, didn't you find it boring? Didn't you? Uh...
2: Oh, yeah. No, it was really like, ugh. I think you've it drifted a bit. Tough.
0: Yeah, I think you've drifted a bit, but it sounds like you got into technology as well. I mean, obviously, you know what a database is. So.
2: Yeah, no, it, it, I just remember, it's funny, because like I said, I did uh, chemical engineering and P-Chem was just really arcane and difficult, and it's just that and thermodynamics were just, I don't know, they were just kind of with enthalpy, entropy, formation, all that stuff. It wasn't very exciting.
0: Right, and I think, obviously, the thing about technology is it's the underpinning of everything, so... You can go to any industry and do anything. And literally, I tell my students, get off the plane and go anywhere in the world and you're going to be in demand. Although with remote work, you don't even have to get on the plane unless you want to. So I think that's what's really important is how technology is in every crevice of our life. I challenge you to think of some place where technology isn't. And sometimes I used to think, well, maybe a Broadway show doesn't have too much technology. I mean, that's a craft and they're creating it right in the theater. And then I realized, no, there's the lighting, there's the sets, there's, you know, the technicians that are making the show happen. So technology is everywhere. And I think we've got to realize that AI, generative AI, all sorts of machine learning will be surrounding us in even greater significance.
2: Well, very good. Well, Patricia, where is the best way for people to find out more about what you're doing in Keep Labs?
0: Well, they can get a hold of me at uh, Kane uh, University, www.kane.edu, K-E-A-N, or my webpage, Patricia Morreale, W-W-P-M-O-R-R-E-A-L-E at wellcom.com.
2: Okay, very good. Well, Patricia, it's been good to talk to you, fellow chemical engineer, and uh, (laughs) thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you. I appreciate your time.